This morning we're going to be reading from John 12, 20 through 29. I'll give you guys a minute to find your Bibles, to stop visiting, which is a happy thing. If you're in the Pew Bible, it's page 899. So once again, it's John 12, 20 through 29. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it and said, it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. This is the word of the Lord. God. Thank you, Terry. So as we go through this series, we're going to be touching on four topics. The first today is we're looking at the glory of God. You know, in our uh, front of our bulletin, you'll see our mission statement. And in it, it says we, we begin really as a church, our primary mission is to honor God or to glorify God. That if you had to summarize what is the purpose of the church or even what is the purpose of my life, we could say the purpose of life is to glorify God. Now that seems kind of high level, doesn't it? It's a theological term. But today what I want to do is to talk about what does it look like really to glorify God? What does that mean? And when you think of the word glory, what image comes to mind? You know, when you hear that word glory, what is it that resonates? What settles in your heart and your mind? Now, imagine for many of us, based on where we live, the mountains are glorious. And why are the mountains glorious? What is it about the mountains that cause them to have a glory to them? I think, for me, I know it's the fact that they're just simply immovable. They're massive. They tower over you. I think in many ways, the mountains are glorious because they're not tame, if you ignore the mountains, the mountains will destroy you. They're dangerous, they're majestic, they're beautiful, they're grand, they're permanent, they last. And all of that adds to glory. And so what is glory? What does it mean? And specifically as we get in this text today, what does it look like? What does it mean to glorify God? Well, in this story, what we find is that Jesus is with Andrew and Philip, and Andrew and Philip come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, there are these Greeks that want to come see you. And what you find in this text is kind of, it's kind of strange that immediately once he hears the Greeks are coming, he starts thinking about the cross. Because see, this is the first time in the Gospel of John that a non-Jew has approached Jesus. And it's reminding him the reason he has come is not just for Israel, but for all people. 
That Jesus came to redeem and to rescue not just the Israelites, but all of us. So let's jump in just quickly. If you want to grab a Bible, again, they're down in front of you on page 899. You can turn your phone on and, and turn there with us in John chapter 12. But in verse 20, it says, Now those among those who went up to worship at the feast were the Greeks. And so these came to Philip, who, have, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went, to, went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And then in verse 23, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That Jesus immediately transitions and his thoughts go to the cross. And he says, the hour of my glorification has come. That he's teaching us something about what it means to glorify God. And if you look down in verse 27, after he talks about this, this moment of glorification, his, his soul is troubled. And it says down in verse 27 that this heaviness comes over him. He says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come for this hour. See, what does it mean to glorify God? Now, I don't know if you realize it, but all of us desperately want glory. Glory is the reason we get up. It's why we work. It's why we, we work out. It's why we hike the mountain. It's, it's why we do all the things that we do. The scriptures say that each one of us is desperate for glory. We're hungry and starving for glory. Now, the thing is, all of us find glory in different places. Some of you find glory in relationships. If I just have that one relationship, if I have that person in my life that loves me or cares for me, or if I have a, a group of people that respects me, then I'll know that my life matters. Or maybe it's not just relationships, it could be accomplishment, achievement, uh, being successful in life, accomplishing things that cause you to say, you know, now my life matters. If I only obtain this, or if I get this, or if I experience this, then I'll know my life has significance. That's an experience of glory. Or for some of you, maybe you feel a lack of glory today. You feel like a ghost. You feel almost weightless. You look at the lives of others, and they seem to have this strength and permanence to them. But when you think of your own life, it seems almost like a vapor. There's a lack of glory. That all of us, from a, a real sense, not just in a spiritual reality, but in relationships, in our pursuit in life, what we long for, what we want is to know we matter to know that we have significance. And we look at the lives of others and we say, hey, that's what it looks like, or there it is, or here it is. And when we get it or we find it, we find that in life, when it's in temporal things, it's elusive. It doesn't stay around. It doesn't stick around with us long enough. And so we look for it in all different places, but in this passage, what Jesus is showing us is essentially three things, that first of all, God alone is glorious. And that because God alone is glorious, he alone must be glorified. And see, when we glorify God, we find the glory, we experience the glory that we're searching for in life. Three things that, first of all, God alone is glorious. Second, that we must glorify God. And one day we all will glorify God. And then finally, when we glorify him, the joy that you're seeking in life, the hopes that you're trying to look for in life, you find those things when you give up the pursuit of glorifying self and glorifying him.
So let's jump into this in, in verse 28. First of all, God alone is glorious. You notice what Jesus said. He wrestles and he says in verse 27, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? What shall I do? Father, save me from this hour. Now that was a real temptation. And in some ways it's a lie. I can step out of this moment and still be okay. I don't have to obey. And this temptation, this lie comes in and he says, what shall I do? Father, not save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come. And then he says in verse 28, and he says it out loud, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. See, what is glory? The noun, the Hebrew word is this word kavod. And the noun form means to be weighty, to have mass, to matter. And in the Bible, people are described as glorious. Kings are described as glorious because kings matter. Objects are described as glorious. And in the end, God is described as glorious. That in many ways, the word uh, glory is used as a metaphor in Scripture describing many things that have weight. Imagine it this way. Think of glory in terms of your own experience. Imagine there's a problem you're facing, a situation that you don't know how to solve. And so you pick up the phone and you start reaching out to friends whose advice you're seeking to solve the challenges that you're facing. You talk to a number of friends, but there's one person in particular. There's one person you really want to speak to because when she speaks, you listen. When she speaks, her opinions really matter. And they come in not just into your mind, but into your heart. And they give you a sense of direction, maybe peace, or, or a sense of guidance. Now, what, what's the difference between the advice of just a friend and the advice of someone you really want to listen to? The difference is glory. That one person is giving you advice, the other one is saying something that has weight. Because of the respect that you have for that person, it sits not just on your mind, it descends into your heart. And when it does, when that advice comes in, you start acting on what they said. Now, think of it this way. Imagine you're meeting somebody new, and maybe uh, you're not an extrovert, you're an introvert, and it's an awkward moment trying to get to know somebody, and you really want to get to know them. You want their respect. Maybe it's a new client that you're trying to, uh, get to gain their business. And in the course of the conversation, you just say something awkward. Have you had that moment? You know, you say something ridiculous or perhaps even offensive, and you're wondering the whole time as you're talking, are they offended? What's... And you, you feel this sense of weightlessness, right? And for the rest of the day, that conversation is just turning over in your mind because you feel like a fool. You feel as if you have no weight. You feel as if your person doesn't matter. That's the pursuit of glory. That what is glorious in life are things that matter. And I'll tell you, you know it's glorious because it affects you. When you find something glorious, it always has an impact on the way that you live your life. And so what does it mean to say that God is glorious? When we say that God is glorious, or Jesus says, Father, glorify thy name, what does it mean, not simply to understand glory as a term in life, but what does it mean to see God as glorious? You know, there's a lot of qualities that we can use to describe God. We can say that God is holy, or God is just, or that God is loving and God is powerful. And yet when you take the term glory... What it means is that God is absolute in all those ways. That God is not just holy, he's gloriously holy. That God isn't just loving, he is gloriously 
loving. The concept of glory is that God is superlative in all things. Meaning that when you see something powerful, if God is gloriously powerful, then all power, in a sense, comes from him. All power reflects him. If you see something beautiful, well, God is the standard in the end of what is beautiful. Because God is not just beautiful. He's not just one aspect of beauty among many aspects of beauty. He's gloriously beautiful, meaning he is the source of all beauty. He's the source of all power. He's the source of all holiness. He is off the charts, you might say that he cannot be compared to anything else. You know, it's a challenge in the English language to describe the glory of God because it's not just one aspect. It's not just one meaning. Instead, it's so vast and so heavy and so great and so big, it contains the person of God. In some ways, to describe God's glory with words is like taking the Atlantic Ocean and trying to pour it into a thimble. You're only going to catch so much. But the idea is his weight and his value is so much greater than anything else. I think one way to capture it is to imagine comparing the weight of a toy truck with that of an actual truck. And imagine you have two scales, and on one side of the scale, you place your child's truck. And on the other side of the scale, you place an actual truck. Well, what impact does the toy truck have on the actual truck? The reality is very, very little. And see, that's the weight of God. He is not just... Holy, he is gloriously holy. God is to be glorified. And so God's weighty. So what does it mean for us to glorify God? Well, Jesus shows us in this passage what it looks like to show God glory. And he picks it up in two ways. He shows us what it means to glorify God in adoring him, but then second, in obeying him. Because whenever you find something glorious, I want you to understand, you will obey it. You have to obey it. Imagine that first time you, your eyes fell on the person that you love. What did you encounter? Now, some of you encountered glory because that person wanted you as well. They wanted to be with you. It was glorious. Maybe for some of you, it was the opposite of that. It was fear. Will she love me? But there's a weightiness there. And what happens is that weight causes you to act in certain ways, to gain that person's attention. It causes you to obey. And so in this passage, we see Jesus doing two things. On the one hand, he adores who God is, but then he obeys. So let's pick it up in verse 27. Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. See, in that verse, he's speaking out of his flesh. The weight of the cross is in front of him. And maybe you've faced a similar situation. A huge decision is in front of you. Something that's fearful, anxiety producing in your life. And the weight of that experience is pushing on your life. And he's saying to the Father, the cross is overwhelming. As I look to what is to come, it, there's a weight in my life. But what shall I do? Will I set my eyes on the weight to the cross? Or will I make a choice to set my eyes instead? Look at how verse 27 ends. But for this purpose, I have come for this hour. And he says, Father, glorify thy name. That Jesus does three things. First of all, he wakes up to the glory of God. First, he grasps the glory of God. And then he lives out of the reality of God's glory. 
Now, it seems odd to say that Jesus wakes up to the glory of God, but we have to realize Jesus is both God and man. And in his humanness, in the face of the cross, you can imagine the cross is pretty overwhelming. The idea of facing the cross, not just the physical pain, but the spiritual pain that comes with it, it's, it's a weight. And Jesus, in his humanness, had to make a choice. Am I going to live my life, life based on the fear I have of what is to come? Or am I going to be obedient by setting my heart on the greatness of who God is? And so he makes a decision. He wakes up to the glory of God. But second, he grasps the glory of God, meaning he understands the magnitude of God's glory, which means he thinks about it. He rejoices in it. He meditates on it. He sits in it until the reality of God's glory begins to permeate and to affect his life. And so do you hear what we're saying? We wake up, we grasp, and then after grasping it, the glory has an effect on our life. Now here's a couple of ways to imagine that. Imagine for a moment that uh, a friend has said, there's this trail that I just walked on. I went on this, this trail that somebody's told about me. It's about a, an hour away, and it is the most beautiful, the most majestic hike I have ever been on in Colorado. I mean, I'd be up for that. And you go, and, and you go out there, and as you start on this trail, what happens is the fog descends, and, and there's really nothing to see, and it seems like a very, very ordinary trail. I mean, your, your steps are pretty light, there's not a lot around you, and you're not that impressed by what you see. But as you go along, eventually the fog lifts, and you realize just three feet away is a 2,000-foot drop. What happens? Well, the weight of the trail descends on you. And instead of walking lightly, you're now taking every single step with intentionality and purpose because you're not only waking up to it, you're grasping it. You're thinking about it. You're rejoicing in it. You may take a selfie and celebrate it. And then finally, you're living out of it because the magnitude of what you see and what you experience is now influencing your behavior. It's changing you. Or think of it this way. Imagine in your home there's this vase. Ten years ago, you got this vase for $1.25 at a garage sale. And it's been sitting in your home and maybe you haven't thought about it for two, three years. Well, a friend comes over and he happens to be an antiquities dealer. He sees the vase, grabs it, and says, do you understand what this is? You say, it's just a vase. I got it for buck twenty-five at a garage sale. He says, no, it's not just a vase. I have seen vases like this sell for up to a million dollars. What just happened? The weight of that vase just descended on you. Now, if you treat that vase the same way... After you got that information, you're putting yourself in a dangerous place because you could miss the value of what it is. If you don't pay attention to the cliff or the, the trail, that trail could harm you. When we don't pay attention to what is glorious, it has a negative impact in our lives. But what happens is we wake up. We realize what it is. And we don't just realize it, we grasp it. We start thinking a million dollars. And that could change things. That, that's a different kind of life. And then we start living on the basis of what we've just experienced. Now, this is how I've seen it happen in the church. Sometimes I'll have a conversation with someone and they'll say to me, you know, last Sunday, I really, for the first time, it's odd to say this, for the first time, I've understood that God loves me. 
And I've heard people say this a number of times. And maybe they've grown up in church, and this could be your story, that I've understood the love of God. I knew God has forgiven me. And yet for some reason, last Sunday or at this um, retreat that I went to, the love of God just descended into my heart. And what I realized is that even though I knew God loved me, I was living with grudges and, and bitterness, that the love of God wasn't changing the relationships I had with other people. And so though I thought I understood the love of God, what happened to me was the love of God became real and I started to grasp it. I started to rejoice in it. I started to celebrate it. I started to meditate on it and it began to change the way that I'm treating the people in life. And so I'm realizing that the love of God is so much greater than anything I've ever experienced. Now, what just happened? They understood the glory of God intellectually, but they haven't woken up. Or maybe they woke up, but the weight of life came over them and God's love wasn't more powerful than the acceptance or the love of others. But when he revealed that love again, what happened is they began to grasp it. They began to think about it, meditate on it, and it began to change the way that they live their life. See, what we're describing isn't just something that falls on you. What Jesus does is actually a discipline. It's a choice. That when experiences come in life that cause anxiety, that cause worry, that cause fear, what you're experiencing is glory. Now, it's a negative glory. It's a weight. And you have to make a decision. Am I going to set my eyes and my heart and my mind on that which is weighty and tearing me down and leading me to anxiety? Or am I going to choose to say, I'm going to turn my eyes off of that which is destroying me and set my eyes on who God is and what he's done? You know, throughout Scripture, that's what those that love and follow God do. It's not that somehow they have these superhuman powers that we don't have. No, what they do is they choose to worship God. And to worship God simply means to set our hearts and our mind on the fullness of who he is. And I'll tell you, it takes time. It's not gonna just happen. Because think about the things you worry about in life. How much time have you spent worrying about it? How good are you? I mean, how much time do you replay that awkward conversation and wonder what that person thinks about you? What you're doing is you're meditating. Well, to the degree that you're doing that in a negative way, we have to learn to do that with God in a positive way. And that's why when you go to the psalmist, they'll talk often about setting their eyes on the Lord and seeing the glory of God in his temple and seeking his face. It's not as if they just walked into the temple and it was like, wow. God overwhelms them. Sometimes that happens, but I think what they're describing is a process of setting our heart and setting our mind, which means often throwing off things that have a false weight, casting our cares on him. Why? Because he cares for us. It's taking the weighty things of life, and instead of meditating and holding them and making them our life, we instead set our heart on who God is. And the beauty is God wants to make himself known. He wants to make himself known. And so what he's saying is that we have, to, we have to set our heart on him. We have to open our mind to him, think about him. But second, the second thing that we see Jesus doing is he not only adores God by saying, Father, glorify your name, but he obeys. Instead of following really the desire of his heart, which would be to escape the cross, instead he submits. Now he submits not out of just moral fortitude, 
That's what we think Christianity is. I just have to have moral fortitude. I just got to get my life right. That's not Christianity. Jesus is not submitting under this moral weight of ethically doing things right. The reason he's submitting is he's experiencing the goodness of God. He's setting his heart on God's goodness, and this obedience flows because the weight of who God is has impacted him. Now, one way to see that is when Jesus returns, Scripture says, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Why? Because you will have to. When the thunder hits on top of the mountain, what do we all do? We don't laugh, we quake. Why? You have to. In the presence of glory, it always has an effect when we grasp it. And what he does is he begins to live out of the reality of who God is. And so again, verse 27, it says, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? In some ways he's saying, what shall I do? Save me from this hour? Rather, it's for this purpose This very reason I have come. Therefore, Father, glorify thy name. See, the reason we fail to obey, it's always a glory issue. The reason we fail to obey is always, always a glory issue. There's something that you think you need that disobedience can get, and it's more glorious than God. You with me? There's something you think you need that you have to have, and it's more glorious than God. So here's the test. Uh, Anybody lie in here today? Not today. Any liars? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I like to talk about my high school days. You know, how sad is that, right? High school track. You kind of fudge a little bit on your time a little faster than you were, jumped a little higher than you did? Why? Or imagine you're meeting someone for the first time, someone that you'd like to get to know, somebody that you'd like to be in a relationship with, and you know, you tell the truth, but not the whole truth. And maybe you make yourself look a little better than you really are. Why? Because that person has glory. And you think by lying, I can, I can get something. from. Or maybe it's a job, and in this job interview, you want the job so much that you're willing to, to lie because the weight of having this opportunity is so great that it overshadows the weight of God. Every time we disobey, it's always an issue of what we find glorious because you were not created to be glory takers. We were created to be glory givers. We weren't created to find glory in jobs or in relationships, even though those things add a lot to life. We were created to find glory in God, and it's only when the heart is satisfied in God that we're satisfied. The challenge is we live in a world that's constantly throwing false glory in our face. I mean, right? I mean, you turn on the television, I think, and you know, you turn on that show, and they show you images and, and pictures and sound bites and phrases and laughter and comedy, and our world is constantly saying, this is where you find significance. If you look like this, if you have this, now you're going to know you matter. And our world is constantly sending message, messages to us to say, hey, cultivate your heart to find this beautiful. And when we just dull, in a dull sense, accept that into our lives, what happens is it begins to change what we do. And so we lie because we think by lying we can get something that God can't give us. What's repentance? 
Repentance is returning a false glory for the true glory. It's saying, hey, what I'm trying to get isn't real. Because even if I deceive her for today, she's going to figure it out tomorrow. I may, I may fool my boss today, but one day I'm going to be found out. And so what he's saying, the reason that Jesus obeys is he understands the weight of who God is. And that weight has an influence on his life. And then finally, what we discover is that when we truly glorify God, we see and experience the glory that we're after in life. That as I said before, all of us are desperate for glory. And notice the way that he describes this in verse 24, and it's, it's an interesting passage as he's thinking about the cross. In verse 24, Jesus describes himself, and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That he knows his purpose is to come and to give life. But see, to give life, and he's going to explain this, you first have to lose life. See, to experience glory from God, I first have to recognize I'm trying to live for glory. What is sin? Sin is trying to find glory in anything other than God. And so the first place thing I've got to do, he says, the first thing you need to do is to die. To die is to say, you know, I'm not a glory taker. I was created to be a glory giver. And so I need to ask God, search my heart and know me. See if there's any wicked ways in me. What are the things that I'm running to right now in life to make my life meaningful? You know, what am I turning to to, to feel as if life matters? Well, we have to confess and recognize and start to search the heart and say, what am I pursuing? Why am I angry? Why am I so worried? What's captivated my heart? And then notice the way he unpacks that. First, the seed have to die, has to die, but whoever loves his life loses it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And then he s- describes the result. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant, notice, will be also. I love in John chapter 14, verse 21, Jesus says, if you obey me, my Father and I will come to you and make ourselves real to you. That's glory. It's not just knowing God, but being known by God. And if God is the most glorious thing, if God alone should be glorified, when you recognize what he who was glorious did for us. And not just uh, obeying the Father, but obeying the Father to the point of death. That Jesus was willing to die for that which was not glorious, that which pursued his own glory, me. That I didn't live to glorify God. And even as, as Christians, so often, you know, we're, we're still in the dance of the world. There are desires that come into life, and we say, this is what it means to live. And yet Jesus Christ laid down his life for us so that we might share in the glory of who God is, that God invites us into himself. So I think the challenge, the application is today is, you know, what are we looking to? What are we seeking to really find that significance and satisfaction in life? You know, and I think at every stage in life it's different. Every challenge we face, it's different. Every moment of new 
new opportunities, new things come into our lives that it's almost as if it begins again. What is life going to look like to glorify God when, when I get this new job or when a child comes into my life or when I lose a parent or when I go through an illness or when someone in my life passes away? See, every moment in life, what we're doing is exchanging the glory of one thing for the glory of another. And Scripture says the only thing that can satisfy the human heart is the glory of God. Because in experiencing the glory of God, we discover who we are. And in discovering who we are, we discover how to relate to everything else in life. You know, Jesus came to show us not only the glory of the Father, but to allow that glory to be in us and to work through us. And so let's turn to him today and ask, and maybe ask the Father, Lord, what is it that I'm seeking after? What am I setting my heart on that's become too weighty? And then how can I just turn my heart this week to the beauty and the majesty of who he is? Uh, Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that time and time again, uh, your word is is reminding us that, that we were designed to be filled with the glory of God, to set our heart on something more permanent than the mountains, more majestic and beautiful than the sunrise, more satisfying than a relationship. But Lord, to set our heart on you and not just an idea, but rather to grasp, to rejoice in, to celebrate in who you are and to allow that, Father, to descend into the heart and to impact the way that we live. Father, we are called to live for your glory and yet we cannot do that without first praying, Father, show me your glory. Help me to see who you are in the face of Christ and in the word of the gospel and in the scripture. And Father, I confess that I need it. I I confess that so easily my heart goes to the things that are temporal and pass away. Lord, by faith, we want to set our heart on you, to know you, to rest in you, and even with the questions and the struggles we have today, not just to be satisfied that everything will be answered, but to bring them to you in a way that you begin to fill the void in our life. Father, help us to to honor you in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we respond and worship.